I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox. Or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, Mr. Neutral, you are one of the FinTwit anonymous accounts that I followed for a while. We've interacted before. I really enjoy your tweets and just all your content. And finally, I had a chance to get you on the podcast. So I just want to dive kind of right into it. Uh, you mentioned on our DMs back and forth before recording how your core investment strategy is basically real estate in the public markets. And I was interested to find out what you meant by that. And um, because on the surface, it sounds like you just invest in a bunch of REITs and kind of call it a day. So I assume it's I assume it's a little bit more than that. Yeah, actually. Well, uh, Brennan, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, you know, I just want to start by saying, uh, love your podcast. You know, found a ton of con- great content and great Twitter follows through your content. So just want to start with that. Uh, going into the, the, you know, the real estate strategy, uh, it is actually the complete opposite. So philosophically, I believe that um that reads are very efficiently priced uh they're pure plays they have specific that's even a metrics they have um you, you know the the management teams cater to the shareholder base and um they trade at a spread to the 10-year treasury usually so it is uh it, 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 you know the, the larger market cap they trade um tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars a day so that is a uh, what I would call a bond alt. It, it's a, essentially like a fixed income in a very low interest rate environment. It's a fixed income uh, alternative, um, and and that's the complete opposite. Of what I do, what I do is I look for smaller companies that uh, tend to have some sort of hidden asset. It could be a land parcel. It could be a construction in progress. 
it, you know, a prime example would be a company that, we, that I own called FRP Holdings. They own land and development rights um, down in, uh, in DC, in the Washington National Stadium. Uh, and they could build probably a million and a half square foot. This is in 2015. They own, a million, they, they own the right to build a million and a half square foot on the river next to the Washington National Stadium. Oh, and, yeah. and it generates no cash flow. It generates zero cash flow. So when someone runs a screen, uh, that's not none of that value, which is worth you know tens of millions of dollars, that does not show up anywhere uh, when you run a computer screen. And that is kind of the niche that I found to have the most inefficiency. It hasn't been arbed away by um, uh, the screening process. And what I try to do is I try to find them where I kind of do my own, some of the parts analysis. I try to find companies where I could buy them for 50, 60 cents on a dollar. And what's important is um, I need to believe that in three years time, some of those assets will be converted into some form of cash flow where there's some sort of catalyst or event where the, uh, the rest of the investing public could run a screen or could look at a press release or could look at a presentation and say, oh, wow, like, like there's a lot more value here. Or they could just slap on a cap, they could slap a cap rate on an NOI and, you know, arrive at a value. Uh, and in the case of FRP, that's exactly what happened. They, uh, you know, developed that they built two multifamily buildings that now produce about $13 million in net operating income a year. And if you slap a cap rate on it, you know, those buildings are worth $300 million. There's some debt on it. Uh, but that's that's like a perfect example of what I do. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because you're basically buying not necessarily call options, but you're buying the rights for hopeful future cash flows based on you know some sort of building, whether like you said, it's multifamily or something like that. Have you ever run into any issues where you've done this sort of uh, bet and it hasn't turned out? So, for instance, let's say you're building and you've got you know, this huge construction project going on. And then a year and a half, two years later, whether it's interest rates get jacked up, you know, costs just start rising. They're like, you know what, actually, we're just going to scrap this. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of collapses from an investment thesis standpoint. Um, so far, I have not run into issue where they don't go forward with the project. But, uh, you know, the more common issue that I run into is that, um the 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 company stay you know continues to trade at a deep discount to intrinsic value that's right. that's more of a comment because um you know finding like a niche where there's a lot of inefficiency is both a blessing and a curse in the sense that uh it's great that you're able to buy something at 50 60 cents on dollar but then like you know if, if you look at two years later um it's still trading at 60 cents on dollars so so mm -hmm. maybe you generate a five ten percent return so that is more common and and that you know could potentially get a little frustrating over time uh, you know the obviously interest rate and, and we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on, on you know talking about interest rates fixed income and how real estate is really a bond alternative um it, obviously, as in interest rate increases, uh, that's going to drive down the value, uh, the intrinsic value of the of the company, uh, and that's where I think where I try to differentiate myself from 
um, private real estate, uh, where when I buy something, I'm really trying to buy it at 50, 60 cents on dollar and, and on an unlevered basis, mm-hmm. um, on a, because a lot of times, um, I think investors in the public market get into trouble because they say, oh, this is trading at, um, um, you know, 40 cents on a dollar of math. Right. And then when you look at the capital stack, you look at the balance sheet. There, you know, it, it's 60, 70% loan to value, right? So when yeah. you actually look at it on an unlevered basis, it's only cheap by um, maybe, you know, 15, 20%, right? So it could give you the illusion of deep value, but it, it actually isn't. Right. Because any small change, if you've got that much debt, right, any small change in the equity value wipes out, you know, the basically your entire investment at that point if you're, if you're leveraged up. Exactly. I mean, if you, um, you know, you, you, you take, um, you know, kind of like if you if you have something that's 80 percent lever, right, like 80 percent loan to value on a single family home. And if the equity value, if the house value were to fall 10 percent, right, you have 20 percent equity down. And if you were forced to sell it, you just lost 50 percent of your equity value. Right. Because you, you, you sold it at, um, you know, n- you know, 90 cents on a dollar or what you pay for but your equity actually got cut in half. So you have to be very cognizant about uh, real estate uh, leverage and balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's wild too, because if you go and spend any time on real estate Twitter and just look at the doomsday predictions with what interest rates are doing to home prices or what they might do to home prices, you're seeing a lot of potential scenarios where home prices fall, let's call it between 10 and 20% in some markets, which given the type of loans that people usually take out we'll call it you know anywhere between three and a half percent to twenty percent you could have a lot of people just have all their equity value completely wiped out of their homes so there's a little bit of nuance to that right uh, and yeah. i am you know I, I lived through the gfc um i remember i've been in the real estate space um probably for about 20 years um including the stuff that i did for my family um and um so the the nuance is that if you have a good paying job you're not laid off you continue to draw a nice w2 wage and you don't need to move for a job um you kind of don't care you don't care what what the interest rate the interest rate go to 12 percent tomorrow and right. it doesn't you're matter right because yeah. you're just making you're, you're just making your mortgage payment right you're making yep. your four thousand dollar mortgage frame whatever it may be and you know house prices going down doesn't matter it's when you get a divorce or the company you work for you get laid off from your job uh you're forced to relocate now you have to sell that house right yeah and and it's it's so the 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 this is as you know these concepts are as old as time right like in real estate you lose money when you're forced to sell right you and and this happened in the gfc uh, we'll reference that a lot later on the conversation. You you get yourself into trouble in real estate when you when you have uh, forced liquidity upon you, right? Like when you're forced to sell, you have some sort of debt maturity that comes due. Now you have to go to capital market and refinance it. Uh, and if you have, you know, if you can't cover the fixed costs. I mean, those are like the three most important concepts. So. I think I think one the stress if there are any single family homes will come from uh, the forced transactions. Uh, the you know the trend the the people who are have healthy earnings and and stable jobs. Um, you know they're just gonna go about that day. Right. Yeah. 
no, that's 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 important. And there's, I feel like there's also a deeper kind of lesson there that you can take to public markets. Where, I mean, granted, public markets it's a bit different, but you really do get into trouble when you have to sell. And for individual investors, right, that's like their biggest advantage over institutions or any hedge funds is there's no LP emailing them yelling in all caps hey i need to liquidate i'm down too much i can't handle this um if you're an an individual investor you can ride out these big swings that we've seen in the markets um and it just it just kind of goes to show like that's one of the beautiful things about the private real estate market is because the friction is so much higher to sell and kind of trade in the market it forces people to just hold through um and there's just i don't know there's just like a lot of nuance and 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 lessons to learn about public market investing through that lens yeah i mean it's and and this is where if i could really use this interview as a way to like um you know help people not make mistakes uh you know every once in a while i i see someone on twitter say well the the this is more like six months ago not so relevant today right some of yeah. them say, well, you could get a 4% yield in this REIT. Why don't you just lever it up? <laughs> you know, why, don't you, why don't you just just double up the exposure and borrow from IB at 1.5% or whatever the interest rate was at the time? And I'm, I'm like, buddy, let me tell you about this time. <laughs> you know, yeah. When you take out a margin loan, when you take out a margin loan and you're subject to mark-to-market risk, uh, you know, <laughs> like like REITs could fall forty percent. Um, you know, if you look at the '09 um, period, SL Green, which is like a ver- New York City office REIT, which is very commonly discussed on on uh, on Fintoit, that fell I think ninety percent from one hundred forty dollars down to below ten. And wow. and so like if you were levered uh, now, there's there's been some structural changes in in reads and uh, debt metrics since then right like uh investors generally public public uh, public real estate investors generally are forcing REIT management teams to have leverage that are no higher than six times net debt to ebitda right so right. so they don't have the same uh, debt metric anymore but it, it is not uncommon for REITs on a mark-to-market basis just you know sometimes go down 30 40 50 percent so so people need to be mindful and i would encourage uh everyone not to lever i mean if you really have to like if you put a gun to my head and say like how would you do it i i would say like if you do a cash out refi and you have permanent 30-year fixed rate debt right um mm-hmm. you know then you can take some of that proceeds and buy some. So this is not investment advice. This is just this is just me offering a different perspective on instead of taking on mark to market risk. You know, there like if you could get three um, percent, you know, what people were able to get in the past, and that's fixed. There's you know, the, there's no mark to market risk. Um, you know, that's the, I would really advocate people to avoid using leverage on reads to to kind of juice additional returns. Yeah, it sounds like one of Munger's places where he could go to die, right? It might it mm-hmm. might not happen all the time, but the yeah. chances of blowing up once you add in that leverage uh definitely definitely skyrocket. Do you think this is this is completely off the topic of 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 the outline we had, but just popped into my head. Do you think we'll ever see some of these mortgage rates uh as low as they were like a year, year and a half ago ever again? Um I mean, so Give everyone some context, right? Um, I, you know, my parents didn't speak any English. So when I was like 11, 12 years old, 
I used to write out the mortgage payments for my parents and we had an 8.75% 15 year mortgage, right? The 15 year is naturally a uh, kind of have a lower interest rate because shorter in duration. So we were paying 8.75%. I would yeah. say that the interest rate, the mortgage rate that we experienced sub 3% in 2020 and 2021, that's probably near century lows. And we're probably not gonna see those rates anytime soon. This is personal opinion. I mean, if you look at the, the history of interest rates, I think, um, sometime there was sometimes like in in um in the 40s or 50s when, when they were very very low mm -hmm. uh, and then you went on this this period where they went up to 16 percent in the um in the early 80s and we had 40 years of falling interest rate so uh, you know interest rate is probably you know i call it financial gravity right it is one of the singular most important topic it is the most important input for value and assets, and, um, um, and 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 I think like you know the, this past decade has been incredible in that we had extremely low interest rate, extremely low inflation, uh, and and very little interest rate volatility, so that people could just assume that when you buy an asset, when you go sell it five ten years later, you you could still exit with a three percent interest rate and and i think we're going through a little bit of re regime change right now where people are actually modeling in interest rate volatility yeah. to their investments yeah it's why it's just so wild to look back at and we were we were discussing this before we hit record just and you you said something that was very very important if you if you drop interest rates to a certain level a certain base level then investments like Virgin Galactic and all of Chamath's, you know, crazy idea companies, all of those make sense. Like that's that's the wild part. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it literally that literally is what the Fed try to do, right? They try to put put push people out to the risk curve, and and you see this on Twitter, uh, where people six months a year ago uh there, there's you know on real estate twitter there's a joke about three cap right and and what three cap means is you're paying three percent cap rate for some belt multi-family and that is three percent cash on cash on an unlevered basis and the thought is if the 10-year yields caught one one to one and a half percent a three cap you know on a multi-family asset that over time should be able to increase rent actually looked very very attractive by comparison and if you could put 10-year fixed rate debt on it uh it looks even you know because then you could juice the returns right uh, it, you know it looks even more attractive uh and, and the joke is you know these real estate twitter people will, will make uh baseball caps with three cap on it uh which is uh, and, which and, is effectively what basically you're paying 33 times like net operating income for that property or something. Yes, yes, yes. And that that is before before expensing for capex. Right. Mhm. Mm That's pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think you'll see three caps for a while, but who do I know? Um yeah, and, and and by comparison, what I try to do with my strategy is that uh, in multifamily, even when interest rates are very low, I try to buy stuff at a 6% cap rate, you know, the market, maybe three and a half, 4%. Like I, I need to be in that 
six to eight percent cap rate for multifamily, yeah. where, where where there's a ton of room for yeah. for you know interest rate volatility. Well, and that's that's what I've always done with any you know type of modeling I do is I just discount the cash flows at ten percent. Like I I don't I don't try to get fancy with risk premium, you know, plus, plus all this other stuff. I know you can like, you can go really deep in the weeds and Oswald Domidorin has like entire classes on how to figure out a discount rate. But to me, it's, if I can, if I can discount all the future cash flows at 10%, that gets me within enough of volatility of any future interest rates where I should be okay, regardless of the mm. environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was something that for a little while got laughed at, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe, maybe, maybe just two years ago. I mean, I think if you look at what happened in COVID, with with, with interest rate being so low, uh, it's it's you know the joke on Twitter is not gonna make it with that yep. strategy. Yep. Part of, part of this real estate strategy that you have in the public markets involves what you call on the ground research, which. Um, I think Patrick O'Shaughnessy yesterday t tweeted about this idea where, um, you know, the, 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 the ability to get on the ground, go see plants, talk to managers, talk to actual people that run these businesses is what I think one of the last remaining competitive advantages. So walk us through kind of your framework for how you do this on the ground research. And, and it, if it applies, not just only to these real estate investments, but Again, you say that you invest in a lot of these old economy businesses. So think, you know, heavy manufacturing, industrial stuff like that. Walk us through that on the ground research framework that you have. Sure. So I'll I'll talk specifically about real estate and um, uh, there there are like two different approaches, right? Mm -hmm. So real estate, what's really important, I think. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of the people in the REIT space. Um, are very, uh, you know, looking at these, they cover a lot of names, they're looking at this on on their, you know, in their cell model, is there rent growth? Is there, you know, are, are these metrics this way? And what I do is, um, you know, going back to one of the companies, um, FRP, I drove, with the help of my younger brother, uh, this is in 2015, I drove from New York City down to Florida and back in wow. a week. So that was a 3000 mile, uh, road trip, right? And and we basically live out of suitcases, ate a lot of Chick-fil-A. And we went to visit probably 30, 40 warehouses in the Maryland area in the Mid-Atlantic. We spent two days on the ground in DC in the Washington National um and but you know in, in the uh, Navy Yard in DC. And then yep. we went all the way down to Georgia and Florida and we literally just drove to look at rock quarries, right? And and it, it's like well, why were we looking at rock quarries, right? They're just giant pits in the ground. What I was really trying to get a sense of is where are these rock quarries? Because a rock quarry is a cash flow stream uh, when it's a rock quarry. But when a rock quarry gets exhausted, it, it, there's a very valuable second life as uh, multifamily development, as warehouse development, as you know, some sort of um, uh, you know water reservoir or waterfront property. So what I was trying to do was trying to um, to see where these quarries were located at. You know, how close were they to population densities? What's also around? And right. you know, we we found one that was um, essentially near Disney, right? And and there's just all these residential developments going going up. They're building houses everywhere around it, and they own a thousand acres. <laughs> you know, <laughs> very close by Disney, right? Yeah. You know, that kind of insight. Uh, and and developing the conviction of that 
uh, dirt value, that location value is mm -hmm. extremely valuable. Even though if I did that DD trip five years, uh, seven years ago, it is still relevant today because when the markets get volatile, I know I put boots on the ground and I've seen it. Uh, for example, um, there's another company we, we, uh, like, you know, in our world called Howard Hughes, right? They own real estate development in Hawaii, in Vegas, you know, they're literally building out towns out in um you know in vegas in um uh in the woodlands and near houston and bridgeland in columbia maryland um uh in uh there's um they own some assets in, in in the seaport in new york and i spent probably at this point 40 days on the ground over the course of five years i've been out to hawaii I, i've been in you know in vegas two three two three times i've been mm -hmm. in the woodlands you know probably three times at this point I take my kids to the seaport. Like I literally know, like in the case of Howard Hughes, uh, most people hate the seaport because you know they view it, um, it's a project that's taking a lot longer to stabilize. And I actually think that when when they stabilize a the seaport, that's gotta be a trophy asset. That's gonna be that's gotta be a place that a lot of New Yorkers and tourists want to go. Uh it, it it's it's truly gonna define what experiential retail is gonna be and mm -hmm. you gotta view the Brooklyn Bridge and and I we probably spent thousands of dollars like you know trying out all the different restaurants there. So right so it's not just that on the ground, it's not just showing up the first time. It's showing up the second time, showing up the third time, showing up the fourth time and seeing what has changed. And and you get this insight that oh my God, they're literally turning raw patches of dirt into luxury high end uh, multifamily with like well curated retail, and, and that is not mm -hmm. something you're going to be able to see from the spreadsheets. I mean, they will eventually. It, there, there's like a three to four year lag because that will eventually manifest itself as uh, cash flow on uh, you know on the income statement. Right. Have you ever looked at? Uh, it's 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 a pretty popular one within the value community, but St. Joe's. Uh, I, you know, St. Joe's is one of those companies where I, um, I know about it. I never physically put boots on the ground. It's something that I've been meaning to do. And, and this is, this is the time and resource intensive part of what I do, right? Like I would love to just take my family down there this winter, uh, and spend like a week in, in that community. I haven't done it. Uh, mm -hmm. it's unfortunate because it's done really well than COVID. Uh, and if I don't have on the ground views and conviction it's hard for me to um uh you know to put a position on but uh it is something that a close friend of mine have done a lot of work and it, it's on my to-do list when we think about boots on the ground as we'll call it the last remaining competitive advantage for investors whether that's small shops or even individual investors do you ever see that advantage being arbitraged away um the same way that Walter Schloss back in the day, he would just buy stuff at, you know, low price to book. Obviously, computers and algorithms have gotten rid of that. Like, do you ever do you ever see or forecast, you know, three to five or ten years out? Like, you're not the only guy doing this. Maybe there's, you know, 10 or 12 sets of boots on the ground by the time you get there. So um it, it, it's a little bit nuanced. I think I think there's a yes and no, right? So mm -hmm. I'm a um I use uh stream by mosaic and the ability for me to get a former employee on the phone or a competitor right um to talk about a company 
I think a lot of that is being armed away and, and they're recording it so that it's becoming more available, right? Yeah. So so I think I see that part eroding and becoming quote commoditized, becoming democratized and um, being, being accessed by the mass. But there's still, I think on the small, smaller market cap called like sub $1 billion, there is an art. And, and this is something that I worked very hard on, right? Um, one of the things where I think some of my edge or alpha comes from is the fact that I show up to a shareholder meeting and I tell the management team, I have a three to five year time horizon because, um, you know, my LPs allow me to do that. My investors, you know, give me, afford me that, 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 you know, uh, that, that duration. Mm -hmm. And I come from a real estate background. I, I want to know, you know, how you think about capital, capital allocation strategically, how you think about what to do with a piece of property, uh, how you position. And, and you know, keep going back to that FRP, right? Um, I went down there to the annual meeting probably in 2016, 2017, and the CFO spent three hours with me. Uh, and, and, you know, at the time, rock quarries was not a business that I understood. I didn't understand how good of a business that is. That is, you know, truly one of the best businesses in the world. Uh, and, um, yeah. and, he spent three hours with me explaining, uh, you know, the rock quarry business. And he said, look, a DCF will vastly undervalue this business. Uh, if you look around, you know, there's tons of families that own rock quarries and, and they're all really wealthy and, and they don't nothing like none of them have to be extremely intelligent. <laughs> you know, they jokingly, they jokingly called that a ham sandwich business. Like, like I'm not calling them that they said that themselves right and that was you know I, I felt like that was my buffett going to geico headquarter moment was when i showed up at that meeting and a lot of these meetings you know sub a billion dollar market cap uh unless it's located in new york city it, it, it's very sparsely attended right uh right. so i think that part won't be armed away and and there's there's some human element of oh you flew down from new york you, you have to put a suit on and you're 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 cordial. You're nice. You understand my business. I think that part is very hard to to be armed away. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And it's just it's just wild that like now anything below one billion dollars is considered small cap. It just blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> A billion used to mean something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It used mm. to mean something, but now it's not. Now now everybody's like, oh yeah, like what are you looking at? Five hundred million? Oh, that's a micro cap. It's like wow, like times have changed, but. It's it's also funny because I think I think there is something to be said um, about the um, uh, you know one of the things that we constantly run into is um, we'll we'll I'll explain a thesis to another investor they'll look at the name they're like great thesis very safe very little downside and actually decent upside they're like it trades two million dollars a day and I, we just can't own it right and and I'm approaching it from the perspective of you know, when we when we bought one of our private, you know, piece of real estate, uh, myself and my family, it, 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 it was six months to close, right? So like, like if I'm there and, and building position over the course of 20 trading days, like I'm totally okay with it, right? But yeah. to like a bigger, to, to someone who runs more diversified, uh, who needs to put at least three, five million dollars to work, something that trades 
a million two million dollars a day like they can't they can't own that right uh right and, and that's that's structurally uh a source of um edge and alpha right uh and um uh, you know where where there's truly inefficiency and, and i think there's some dynamic on the broker side there's just less you know research and 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 trading support by the investment banks uh that provides that liquidity like 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 mm -hmm. there's there you know some of the spreads in these names are are wider right so uh, it's it's um it, it truly is a uh, unique dynamic i want to get into the fixed income collapse and your thoughts on kind of Clarman's great reset and stuff stuff mm -hmm. we're DMing about um before before the podcast but to kind of set the stage for that conversation you you had an interesting um, lens to view the great financial crisis as you worked at City during that whole thing, um, mm -hmm. which is which is kind of nuts, right? So now we kind of get to live through that moment through someone that was we'll call it on the ground at that point. So walk us through how it felt to you know literally live through a day to day to see it from such a close vantage point, um, and how that has impacted you from an investment standpoint. I mean, that was incredible. So to some of the, uh, you know, younger listeners, um, you know, I'm in my early 40s. Uh, so anyone who actually were working in that time and working finance, you essentially have to be older than 36. All right. If you, if you were 22 in 2008, you, um, you know, it's been about 13, you know, call it like 13, 14 years right now. And so you essentially have to be 36 or older. To have lived through that experience, uh, and and that was uh, that was just mind-boggling, right? So, give you a little bit of context. I graduated in '04. I did some HVAC engineering, um, and then it was in the middle of housing bubble, uh, and I uh, switched careers and went to work at Citigroup. And I was in there, um, you know, I went through the I, um, the the IBD training program, and then. I got placed into the middle market group where we were helping um, in, um, owners uh, sell, mostly do sell side mandates for real estate deals up to a billion dollars. Um, okay. And um, you know, like uh, one of the one of the deals that we were representing people on was a three million square foot um, regional mall deal that where the owner bought it from. Um, from the Simon Group, right? And there's okay. a saying that uh, if David Simon can't make a mall work, you can't, right? <laughs> <So> <laughs> keep that in mind, okay? <laughs> and, and this group bought it from David Simon, and the deal was financed with it was like a three hundred sixty million dollar deal. It was eighty percent um, mortgage, ten percent. Mezzalone by Bear Stearns and the uh, you know the family bought and put up like forty million dollars of equity, right? So it was eighty, ten, and ten, right? <laughs> and, and it's like the buyer had no business running this. They didn't have any sorts of leasing operational expertise in the mall business, and they were able to buy something with ninety percent loan to value with like a ten percent piece. That's probably I don't remember probably like eight to twelve percent interest rate at this point, right? Wow. And we took that deal to market and early on and, and keep in mind right like um the, like bear stearns happened that year my brother was at bear stearns uh and, you know and 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 people you know bear stearns was trading 170 dollars a share and 
And eventually JP Morgan had to go in and buy Bear Stearns and people were pissed because Bear Stearns got bought for two dollars of uh you know of equity, right? And they made some noise and then and then they upped that purchase price to ten dollars and people thought that Bear Stearns got stolen, right? And then you know Lehman happened, and and of course like people know what uh, and, and Lehman shareholders got zero, right? Yeah. And what was what was incredible about that experience was we took the deal out, and we initially, uh, you know, get people sign NDAs. You know, probably twenty percent people sign NDAs. People took a look at it, and what I remember was that every couple of weeks that went by, like the investor sentiment just continues to sour, right? Yeah, right. 20 people signing NDAs, they took a look and they have a few people come back and they're like, okay, like we're interested, give us more, give us more uh, due diligence material and a few people. And eventually it got to a certain point. One guy just outright said, he said, he said, hey, you know, this deal, like with with 80% loan to value, he basically said, look, the family overpay for these assets. Um, you know. You have ten percent equity cushion. He's like they probably paid a hundred million dollars more. It's probably worth two hundred sixty million dollars. They paid three sixty. They, you know, like the equity guys don't own this asset anymore. And he's like, I don't, I don't think you know Bear Stearns own these assets anymore. And that was that was like a real like you know we have to go back and tell the family uh, that owned this. Uh, you know that was like a very difficult conversation. And what was unique about that time period was just how easy how loose the lending standards were, right? Mm -hmm. So to put things in perspective, the banks were about 30 times lever, right? So they had about, the equity piece was about 3%. Mm -hmm. And the, the the debt was about, you know, 97. So, so like, that was like uniform across the board with maybe exception of like Wells Fargo and JP Morgan. And then they had all this off balance sheet liabilities that no one understood who owns what and what, what they were on, on the hook for, right? And from a um, kind of like an everyday consumer perspective, if you had a pause, you could walk into a bank and get a mortgage, right? So my brother and I were in the process of buying a piece of real estate in OA, and the the you know the mortgage people, people you know mortgage brokers that like my family knew them, and they're like, oh, uh, the younger brother works for Bearson, the older brother works for City. They're like, oh, this mortgage is gonna be you know upside down in like six months, but. We still got approved, like, this is like in no way, you know, just just to kind of like get a sense of like how cavalier the attitudes were, and yeah. um, you know, people. I, I mean, I knew at the time I, I needed to lock into thirty year fixed rate, right? Like all I was concerned was was what was my mortgage payment? You know, does the rentals cover by at least you know one point three, one point four x? If it's yes, then then I'm fine, right? But a lot of people like like there there were products like negative amortization, right? <laughs> and that so is, explain well, that explain that to me like I'm five. Like what is like okay. what does that mean? So let's say you, you you bought a piece of property like like in the big short, right? And yep. you really could not afford the payment on it, right? Yep. So instead of like a a normal amortization where where you pay three thousand dollars and you know. 2500 goes toward the interest and 500 goes toward the principal right you're paying down the principal you you, you, you like they somehow get you into say a two thousand dollar uh monthly payment and you're actually like accumulating 500 of like initial <laughs> principal right <laughs> every I mean, time i go a little bit deeper into understanding the gfc it just gets it just gets more wild 
Oh, it, it is. It is. I mean, I was at a gym one time. I just graduated, so I didn't have any finance knowledge. But like behaviorally, like you could understand why something wasn't right, right? So mm -hmm. I was at the gym. There was two big me heads working out at the gym, and one guy goes. I just bought a house and flip it three days later and made fifty thousand dollars, right? And the other meathead goes, "Wait, how does that work?" And the first meathead goes, "I don't know. It just is. Like that's how the market is, right?" Like, <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my god, we're we're gonna be in trouble." And and um, I mean, there there are just so many things. I mean, people, you know, there were a lot of people working on Wall Street who didn't really get, you know, have the real skill set and they were being paid a ton of money. Um, you know, the brokers didn't care. The banks didn't care. Chuck Prince, you know, Chuck Prince, the CEO of City at the time famously said, if the music is playing, we have to dance. Yep. Right. And, and I was at City and, and also like to give you a sense of what was going on. Uh, I went into the city when the city stock was 50 bucks a share and it kept dropping, kept dropping no one knew what was going on and there were some people around me who bought shares um you know at 40 at 35 at 30. it went down to a dollar it went down to a dollar and no one knew if city was going to be the next lehman like i right. was there i was there and they gutted my whole group because the, the thinking at the time in in you know in late oa was like who's going to buy real estate like there, there's going to be zero m a transactions and yeah. they literally they got rid of my md they got rid of me uh and and you know some of the stories like the phone calls that i used to get literally real estate gps crying right just just call me and crying saying uh and, and again like like but like what i really want people to learn about that period and and this is timeless right you get into trouble in investing when you have very short-term maturity right and what i mean by that is that you take out a loan and it comes you know you have to repay it uh within a year or two right that could be in the form of bridge financing or you have a 10-year uh, debt that's coming due in one or two years and you haven't refi it right that's a huge source of risk the, the you know uh, coverage ratios, right? You own some sort of asset where you can't you can't service the uh, the, the the mortgage the the mortgage property taxes, all these fixed expenses, right? Uh, right? So this naturally happens if you're buying some sort of development deal where there is no cash flow, right? Um, uh, and and um, uh, so 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 like you know you're doing a development deal, there, there's no cash flow, the debt comes to you, there's like nothing to kind of uh, be able to service that debt, um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, and just like over, you know, overpaying for these assets. Right. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's this like consistent theme, consistent theme of, of very short term maturity. Like, like the most prime example was general growth, general growth had to file for bankruptcy because they had debt come due. They, they bought another piece of property. I believe it was Rouse at the time. And they had debt come due during the financial crisis where when everyone was worried the banks were going to go on there, right? Yeah. So they were trying to go out to the capital markets to try to, you know, refinance, I, I believe it was $5 billion of debt. My memory is a little hazy right now. And the capital markets is like, we're not open for business. The yeah. banks may have to file for <laughs> Sorry. bankruptcy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, I had, 
there were stories of condo developers who were building and you know they, they had drawers on the construction loan and they would be 70 percent complete and you know Citigroup or you know uh bear Stearns would just be like we're not financing this anymore because from from Citigroup's perspective is that like like we're, we're gonna have to take an impairment on on the debt anyway no one's gonna be buying these condos and like we're not you know we're down you know we, we gave you 70 percent of the construction loan like we're not going to give you the other 30 percent so you're literally right. caught right there were all these there was a guy who called me from mesa arizona he bought up all the land he thought he was going to turn it into um he was going to put in the infrastructure took out meds loans that matured uh in six months uh, in three six months when he called me nice. it, it, it was just a ton of <laughs> meds loan there's no cash flow your your your, your income is not recurring it, it's a sale right so yep. so he had to sell these land uh, he's relying, you know, there's a big difference between, okay, like there's a tenant that lives uh, in your multifamily and he pays rent. As long as he continues to pay rent and you can serve his mortgage, you're fine, right? But like when you have home sales and lot sales, you know, condo sales, like like in a, in a recession, um, when, when liquidity dries up, like those just ground to a zero and, and investors need to understand, you know, those dynamics. And you can even make an argument, something like Seratage, has that risk because um as we go into a higher interest rate environment we go into risk off environment uh and and you know the liquidity the willingness of people willing to bid on these assets could right. just kind of evaporate right and, and those are and, and and you know so what do i learn from that experience is um and you know uh, what, what i learned from that experience is every investment that i make today i go back to that experience and i say okay if i apply the gfc experience and and also i can add COVID to it now right because i lived yeah. through that as well Had another right? crisis yeah another crisis and, and i'm like i'm like okay uh you know what were the things that caused it cause it to fail right and i apply right. the experience the uh, you know what happened there and I underwrite it to the GFC. And most people I talk to will say, Miss Neutral, you're nuts. Like, like that's not gonna happen again, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah. that's my standard on the right. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's just, I could listen to those stories literally all day. Like that is, it's just, it's so wild because you'll have people here that are listening to this that might be younger that they're only kind of understanding of that time period is just by watching the big short which i love that movie right like i mean who doesn't mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. um to get other people's perspectives outside of hollywood's you know um kind of cinematographer uh, their 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 cinematic version of it is just so interesting and enlightening um mm -hmm. yeah I could, mm -hmm. I could i could i could literally spend the rest of the podcast on it <laughs> and also like like there, there's there's like a happy story that came out of it right like like i bought a property i closed on a property a four unit walk-up rental in um in in 2008 right and uh again it, if i was able to cover my fixed cost by uh one three or one four times than that time and uh, you know, again, like I didn't have to look at the stock price. I just, I just made sure I collect the rent. I just made sure that my, you know, tenant paid me, that they were all taken care of. And we came out of it totally fine, right? 
So, so again, like debt maturity, debt coverage ratio, and cash flow. Those are the three things that are most important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it sounds so simple, but it's amazing how people just threw simplicity out the window during that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's, I mean, even, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes like I, I follow a lot of real estate GPs on Twitter and sometimes they'll discuss, you know, using bridge loans. Like, you know, they, they, they'll find something that's, that's really, um, you, you know, they know it is a good risk reward. And, and the problem with buying in the private markets is that you can't just buy a pound of steak. You got to buy the whole cow. Right. And, and this is the difference. Like, 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 I could talk for five hours. The difference between public real estate and private real estate, right? And so, a lot of times they go out and and get you know hard money loans or or mes loans, you know, to 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 close on the deal. And I would just caution anyone doing that right now to, to just like understand the kind of environment we're going into you. And just understand that liquidity could just dry up overnight, and and I mean that's that's a nature of banks, right? Uh, yep. There's like a saying that a bank is someone who gives you umbrella when it's when it's sunny outside, but takes it away the moment it starts to to rain, right? And and like you you always <laughs> have to and you ha always have to think about the world. I mean that is how the world works, right? You know, uh, so so I think if you use those frameworks. Um, you know, I, and checklist, like, I, I think you'll do okay, but like, you know, don't get caught up. <laughs> yeah. Let's, mm -hmm. let's talk about the fixed income collapse since we're mm -hmm. on, you know, the topic of interest rates, mortgages and all that. Um, what do you, what are you seeing? And, and, and I think we mentioned this before, uh, before we hit record, but you said that you started at like actually outright shorting some, I think, treasury ETFs and things like that, which you haven't done in a long time, maybe ever. Um, so mm -hmm. walk us through kind of what you're seeing, how you're interpreting it, and then how you're reflecting those interpretations in the market with specific bets. Sure. So, so um, you know, uh, I, I don't want to come across as being a jerk, but I, I think that there are people, uh, if you're in the real estate game and you've been in it for 20 years like I have, both on the public side and private side, you internally understand that the 10-year treasury affects the pricing of real estate and and we could go like you know across different asset classes you could you could look at um you know uh profitless growth companies SPACs, um SaaS companies trading at very high revenue multiples and corporate mm -hmm. bonds and, and everything right so so i think there are people who intuitively understand that that interest rate is a key input into asset pricing uh it literally is financial gravity right yeah. uh in in a four percent 10-year treasury you're we're on earth right in yeah. a 10 percent in one percent 10-year treasury we're on the moon right <laughs> at zero percent mm -hmm. you may as well be out in space like 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 every you know <laughs> like everyone could jump everyone could jump 10 feet right yeah <laughs> so <laughs> That's literally the analogy. And it's really been a miracle that we've had a decade since the GFC of um call it like two percent ten year treasury, you know, oftentimes sub two percent with a one handle ten year treasury, and essentially two percent inflation rate, right? It's really been like a miracle that that we have that for 12, 13 years. And I don't know if you remember this, but when we came out in GFC. 
Buffett was was warning about inflation. John Paulson, who made talking about shorting, you know, shorting the housing market. He had a gold fund. David Eichhorn had a gold strategy. You know, gold like like getting exposure to gold and having inflation hedges was like was like on everybody's mind, right? It was like and crypto then, is today, basically. Yeah, I mean, in essence, right? Uh, and and nothing happened, right? So I think we got low to sleep of mm. this 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 like like we we I think we got complacent. And and if you kind of listen to Howard Marks, um, to to if you read a lot of Howard Marks, like he talks about this, right? Late sage, like people get really complacent, um, and um, so. What was going on, what I started noticing was when COVID happened, they printed all the money and I'm like, okay, that's, that's, that's like, we need, we needed to do that as a society because we were keeping people from home. Uh, we we're keeping people at home. Like, like yeah. we needed to like, you know, pay people, get, get, get us through this. Right. And what I started seeing was inflation was cruelly ramping up and the Fed kept saying, you know, this is transitory, transitory, transitory. And then sometime late last year, they stopped say they stopped using the word transitory, right? And what I try to do is I try not to predict macro. Mm-hmm. I, I just try to imagine what will happen if 10 year goes to 4% and how I want to be positioned. And I intuitively know that if the 10 year goes to 4%, my real estate positions is not like like a multifamily is not probably not going to trade at a three and a half percent cap rate right three cap is dead in a four percent ten year treasury right like, <laughs> yeah the 33 times is yeah. in the rear view mirror yep yep uh and so i so so shorting the 10-year treasury has been a widow maker and I just looked at the fixed income world. I was really looking for a way to hedge out the interest rate risk in my portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. I'm long real estate, which means I'm, I'm intuitively short interest rate or making a bet interest rate will stay the same. And I was looking for ways to hedge out the interest rate risk. And I looked at the 20 year treasury bonds. I looked at some of the you know long-term corporate bonds and the 20 year treasury was, I believe, yielding 1.9%. So inflation is running at, Eight eight and a half percent, and the the twenty year treasury gives you one point nine percent yield. So your 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 you know your real yield is like negative six and a half. Right? Yeah, <laughs> six and, and I'm solid, like, solid and bet, like, solid bet, <laughs> solid bet, right? Like I'm just like this incurably just doesn't make any sense whatsoever at all. And also the Fed stopped using the word tra- uh, you know transitory, and mm-hmm. that's when I. Uh, essentially said I, I needed to find a way and I don't have access to like CDS, right? Like like Bill Ackman that person. So I have to kind of synthetically create my own form of uh interest rate hedges. And mm-hmm. I thought that the most obvious will be to short, you know, treasuries, very long duration, um, you know, kind of like the the uh the 14 year long duration corporate bonds uh and a couple others, right? Um, so that's, that's what I did. And, and it's been, um, you know, it's helped offset, you know, some of the, um, uh, on the performance on the real estate, on the, on the long real estate side. Yeah. And also I intuitively knew if I somehow was wrong on that bet, there's a pretty good chance my real estate names will, will go up a good amount. Like, like if somehow the 10 year yield 
goes from court like 1.9 to you know might have been 1.5 at time to one percent uh my real estate names there's a good chance that goes up 15 20 percent i mean it's just yeah it's just it's just like the the so, so like they would naturally hedge um you, you know the, the the short fixed income and the long real estate naturally hedge each other yeah if you look at let's call it the debt stack um mm -hmm. or, the, or the fixed income stack 20-year bonds junk bonds corporate debt do you then decide like let's say this fixed income collapses gets bombed out where are you looking if you are to then flip and kind of buy some of this you know really distressed debt whether it's at the junk bond level or whether it's corporate bonds like how how do you then kind of roll reverse and and then play the other side I would say that the um, um, so 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 like I'll, I'll just I'll I'll just frame it first and then and then I'll explain. So yeah, the the Treasury is absolutely going to have the lowest yield, right? Like you know, let's just walk through the stack, right? The Treasury is going to have the um, the lowest yield. The um, um, the corporate debt's going to be like the investment grade corporate debt's going to have you know some spread to the to the treasury and the junk bond's going to have the highest highest yield right and then and then I would also throw in like uh, utilities and and private equity and 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 um, and real estate right they're all kind of bond alternatives uh, when interest rates were very very low people got pushed into these asset classes right so even though my core strategy is real estate i'm very cognizant that we had a, a lot of tailwind in the real estate space mm -hmm. because of this very low interest rate policy pushing people you know into these asset classes right um so you know where would i focus on um there's I recently heard that Paul Tudor Jones in I believe 1987 actually made a ton of money the moment he figured out that the market was gonna crash and the way to benefit from it was actually go to go long the treasury, the 10-year treasury, I believe, because that is a risk-off environment where people now, you know, believe that we're going to some sort of recession. Uh and um and, and we need, you know, they need to own assets that are less risky and have a, you know, guarantee payout by the U.S. government, right? Right. So I've taken off the uh, the Treasury uh, uh, short, right? Because I, in a risk-off environment, the Treasury could potentially rally. So that's something that I'm no longer short, right? Mm -hmm. um, where I would try to pick for opportunities is if we get really distressed. I would look at individual bond names, and and this happened in in the eight oh nine, right? Mm -hmm. At the time, um, you know, if a bond start, you know, starts trading sixty cents on a dollar, it's equity at that point. <laughs> it's it's equity, <laughs> right? It's equity with bond protection. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of looking right? at it. <laughs> and and I I will traffic in that, right? And, and you know, we're not quite there yet uh but if we continue to get more stress uh in the market like i you know that that could be very interesting i would say every investor should pay attention to junk bond yield um i, I think that's a very important signal uh it's well, the it's, credit it's guys are always smarter than the equity guys right that's how it goes yes yes that's generally that's generally correct like if you look at 
um, the two year, the ten versus and the ten year, the inversion, the the fixed income market is giving you a lot of signal that we're probably going to a recession, right? And the thinking is that people want to own the ten year because um, the uh, uh, you know, we're going to recession, so they're willing to take lower returns for certainty of payout, right? Like, I don't, I'm probably butchering the reasoning, but I understand enough that uh, there's a tremendous amount of signal in in the the, the yield of uh, fixed income. Yeah. Yep. It's just, now from there then, because this is just me thinking like, how can I kind of replicate this in my own investing? If you say, okay, if things get really distressed, like maybe start looking at these company bonds, these, these, the, these corporate bonds, do you have some sort of backlog or some sort of watch list of companies whose debt you would like to own at a certain price, almost like an equity, right? Like you've got these great businesses and you're like, Hey, if this business ever reaches this price, I'll go in and I'll do some work and I'll probably buy it. How is it like on the on the bond side? Is it hey, I've got these list of ten companies whose debt I'd like to own if it ever got cheap enough, and then you go in and buy it whenever it gets to that price? Uh, I don't have a buy list like that. I mean, I have a buy list for equity. Yeah, um, and and I and, and this becomes like a little bit of an optimization problem, right? Like, like if we get into a scenario where you could buy. Um, I would probably say that um, for like here's a good example, right? Like, like I own a company called Barry Global, classic packaging, right? Oh, it they actually is, popped up on uh, a screener for me. Okay, for B E R Y, yep. yeah, B R Y, right? For equity or on the bond side? On the equity side, it actually, okay. pretty cheap. Yeah, the uh, like. If somehow the Barry bonds goes to eight to ten percent, right? I'll probably, wow. probably just own that, right? Like it's it's yeah. not there, but I'm saying okay. if, if somehow if, if they if, do, if, yeah, if they do, because that's a business that I understand very very well, and and also anything in the packaging space. So so I will probably go any of the names that we already have investments in. If okay. any of them start trading at distressed prices, right? So this would be like chemicals, uh, you know, distribution businesses, like you know, the old economy businesses, right? Right. Um, and um, chemical distribution, um, uh, the uh, um, you know, packaging, like 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 we like packaging from a um, almost like I mean, there's a saying that uh, packaging, like plastic, specifically plastic packaging is a bond masquerading as an equity because if you look at the cash flow and you look at how they did in the gfc i think that ebitda dropped something like percent of like plastic packaging companies and and you like think through the business of uh, of plastic packaging they make shampoo bottles they make uh you know the consumer staples they make packaged food they make you know shrink wrap uh you know beverage bottles we don't really use less of them in, in the, even in the GFC. So the equity of these companies are really bonds, but they don't trade like that in the public market. I worked for an RAA before I left and joined MacroOps. One of my, one of my bosses, he was an unbelievable boss. Um, the way, the way he could interpret an investment to clients 
was something I took for extreme granted uh, because I, at that point I was just a numbers person. I was like, yeah, like if the stock is cheap, like just buy it. Who cares if you have to like relay it to the, uh, to the, to the client. But man, like that was, I was so wrong on that. Um, and he, he had this framework for investing and kind of looking at companies and he called them the white ass white face businesses. And his whole framework around that was like, look, if we hit a recession, like these types of businesses, people are not going to stop using their products or services just because we're in a recession. And it was, it was just so simple, but it was so powerful. Cause I'm like, yeah, like that's so easy to explain to, you know, whether it's an LP or a client and an RIA, um, or even you're just trying to understand how a company can live through a recession like that. It's like, all right, like use the white ass white face framework. And it's, it, it was just, it was, it was very powerful back then. And I, and I took it for granted. That's, that's incredible. The white ass white and, and I'll, you know, I'll share some examples, right. Um, you know, going back to what you said about the, the old economy that I focus on. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll, I'll go back to like, um, to the rock quarry business that I love. Right. <laughs> and, and, and like, people are going to get so sick of me. But the rock quarry business, I, I got the idea because I was reading uh, Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, right? And the way he explained it is you could, when you get these gravel and sand out of the ground and you sell it, maybe you sell it for $15, $20 a ton, right? The thing yeah. is, when you, if you want to truck it 30 miles, the trucking cost is going to be $15, $20 a ton. I, I think, you know, a few years ago, the management team, it's, it's, it's like... 40 cents per, per ton mile, and it's likely higher today, right? It could be like 50, 60 cents per ton mile. So you do the math, right? If you have to truck it 30 miles, and in that, essence, the, the, the trucking cost, is, it starts exceeding like what you sell these assets for, right? So the fact yep. that, uh, you know, the aggregates are in, inherently worthless, create like this moat of like 30 mile radius around you on where like people come in and compete with you. And then it naturally becomes like a, a local monopoly or, or duopoly, right? So there are these like, um, you know, like like going back to the old economy, it's like, it's like, is it really old economy or is it really something else, right? And, and I think there's themes like nimbyism, right? Like, yeah. like why am I long New York City real estate? And, and this is something when, when you're younger, you think you're bright, you, you could do DCFs, like, you know, why, why do you pay a 5% cap rate, cash on cash yield on New York City, right? Why not just go elsewhere and get 8% cash on cash yield? And, and what you don't, like, what people forget, right, is that if you're in Manhattan, you're on an island, like, like you know, Buffett talks about <laughs> moats, right? Like, yeah. there's literally a moat, you can't build any more new supply. Like, I, I get a little excited when I talk about this, right? Because I'm like, it's so simple, it's so inherent, right? And every place that has been built, essentially, like like any like, like there's just no empty lots in Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn where you could build like a big, you know, big residential tower, right? Mm -hmm. And if you do like if you know if you do find a site, like the zoning process, the the nimbyism, there's always neighbors protesting, your neighbors are suing you. Like to bring down supply literally takes like four or five years in New York City. So it, it sometimes is just really simple dynamics description of real life, right? And and mm -hmm. this is something I joke that 
this is how you wind up with immigrants who are landlords in New York City and hedge fund guys and 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 you know tech bros uh, being their tenant, right? Like, just like <laughs> you get these super sophisticated people who's like, 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 like I'll just rent, you know, it's five percent, like, like it, it's it's four percent cash and cash yield. Like, why would I buy, right? And then there's some immigrant family who goes rent goes up my debt is fixed they can't build a lot more like like (laughs) yeah yeah well there's 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 a penalty for over over complicating things and i think real Mm -hmm. estate is a good vessel for kind of seeing that in a way that the stock market isn't because in the stock market you can kind of get lost in the complexity and not know that you're lost where in real mm-hmm. estate, like the math is so easy that you can just write it on the back of a napkin. And I don't know, I don't know if you've connected with my buddy Jason Greenwald. Um, but uh if you haven't, I'll I'll exchange your guys' information. But he he's a real estate, he runs his own real estate, private real estate fund. Um mm-hmm. we, you know, just like Fran uh I think I think just family capital. And the way he describes, you know, his valuation and kind of investment process, it's so simple that you can't you can't get lost in the complexity and the moment you do you're exposed mm-hmm. 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 no that's <laughs> I, you know i i would love I'm, I'm gonna be you know i'll be in the dc area and uh where we're either you me and jason and i either just have to go like get dinner oh, uh, that'd be so at, fun. At the, yeah at the, you know at box 79 where we'll, we'll go get crabs you know one of those yeah. awesome maryland crab areas yeah, I mean, I'm right here yeah. in Annapolis, so it's like a 35 minute drive for me. Yeah, that's we got to do it. All right, let's. We, I mean, shoot, it's like been an hour already, and I feel like it's flown by. Um, but mm-hmm. I want to get a few kind of closing questions that also envelop and kind of you know put a bow on your investment process. And so the first kind of big question, and we can we can decompartmentalize this, but if you had to rebuild your investment process from the ground up how would you how would you do it and then a couple kind of prodding questions is like what things would you include today that you wouldn't have when you first started investing and then like what things would you just not include at all that you thought were important you know 10 20 years ago um so i would say that um you know what i would include today um a couple things one i would just focus on um higher quality businesses and and i think like most investors uh, you, you know that there were like there were so many things i did wrong when i started out right uh, yeah. i was uh, i held too much cash i um uh haven't figured out hedging yet uh you know that's something that that i got better at uh by the way like like i i, I, I we, we could cover hedging like i got you know i i uh, set aside a lot of time for this, right? So uh, I would look at higher quality companies. I would uh, get on Twitter earlier. I mean, Twitter has been amazing. I'm like an old dog that learned a new trick. I'm connecting with people uh, just by being nice and putting good content out there. Um, you know, I made a tremendous amount of connection. We're having this conversation because we're both on Twitter. I've hired people. I have two interns and and, and two full-time analysts now because of twitter i mean you know i would get on twitter like if you're young get on twitter put content out and people will find you uh you know just be nice put out good content um and even if you're older like you you could be an old dog like me being in your 40s like get on twitter like the amount of real-time information that i'm able to get uh, yeah. is absolutely amazing and and you know I, I dm people people dm me uh that's been a game changer so uh i 
I wouldn't hold as much cash, even though we're like in the middle of a big drawdown, right? Yeah. I would, um, you know, focus on higher quality companies. On the don't do's, I would, I would avoid any terminal business. Like, you know, we, we got involved in Macy's. Uh, I thought that the real estate value, I, I avoided Sears. And I just saw, man, like, like there's agency issues. Uh, you know, Dan McMurtry talked about this. Like when, when things are going wrong, there's like agency issues, right? Uh, when, when, when Amazon is attacking department stores, like, like, like that's just really, really tough. Like, like if you're in any sorts of terminal business, I think that my multiple, like I would probably only be interested if I knew it was being liquidated and cash being returned to me. Like that would be, and, and if you look at something like, don't want to pick on Curate because a lot of people that I love on, on Fintoit like are, are long that name. Like, yeah. like I would pay a lot of attention like if a business is terminal. Like if it's terminal, like if it's not being liquidated, I probably don't want to touch it. Yeah, because then at that point, like you're just betting that it's this melting ice cube that won't realize any value over a mm-hmm. long of time. Yeah. Do you yeah. we do we want to do hedging? Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Yeah. Uh what do you want to start? Well, let's start with the fact that no one really I mean, no one really discussed hedging over the last year and a half at all. And I think I don't know if it was Chamath, but I also read a Morningstar article about uh some guy was like hey should shorting be illegal or something and i think i tweeted that title when i read it i'm like like this is literally the time to start shorting like this is the time um and so i guess the best way to start from a from an individual perspective is like what are what are some bad ways to hedge like let's Uh like let's invert the hedging process and if if there's any types of hedging whether it's puts naked equities how do you see people kind of lose their shirts hedging and doing it the wrong way okay i think doing it long the wrong way obviously like like what happened to uh you know blocking right like what what happened to melvin capital like that's everyone should go study that yeah and that that to be fair like that was a newer form of risk like that's never really been happened where where people were coordinated and and play the gamma squeeze, right? Like mm-hmm. outright naked short is is very very hard. And I think like some of the pattern recognition is that if it's a common hedge fund short with very high short interest uh, and very low trading volume, so like a, a ton of days to cover, uh, and it, it's a constant like you know. There's a saying in, in on the short side, which I don't do a lot, is that like don't size anything more than one percent, right? Don't size anything more than one percent. Uh, shorting, uh, uh, so like getting squeezed is a terrible way to hedge, right? To mm-hmm. to 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 short. Um, that's kind of common. The I think shorting long and open ended growth stories is is a bad way to short, right? Like think about all the people who shorted, um, you know, fangs in the past decade, uh, shorting Netflix. What, what's that? Tesla. Tesla. That's example. like the great example. Yeah, Tesla is a great example. Um, so I think those are terrible ways to show. Now, I would I would like turn the conversation around and say, what are you trying to accomplish with your hedging strategy? Right? Because like like my hedging strategy has evolved, right? Like I'm a I'm a child of the GFC. I study Klarman, I study Howard Marks, I study Buffett. And I distinctly remember 1999 with like 2000 when tech bubble burst, right? Like, so, so if you think about my experience, 
I was in college when the tech bubble burst and I lived through the GFC all in the span of like nine years, right? Like, That's wild. It's very, it's very relevant, right? Like I remember in 2003 trying to find jobs. It was still very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, a, lot of, a lot of companies were not hiring. I had a really hard time, uh, you know, uh, getting, getting my first job, right? So I, it was very like Morgan Household says, like your personal experience really affects how you think about the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think before I launched, you know, I, I manage outside capital, right? So I uh, study, I spent like a whole year studying why people fail, why hedge funds, you know, fail during the GFC. And, um, you know, I, I think it's some combination. If, if I have to like boil down is that, um, it, you know, you have a big drawdown, right? You have a big drawdown. Now your LPs are are like, you just don't have the same power. You don't have the duration to like get to the other side, right? You're right. probably mentally like, you're, you're probably suffering something on, on par with PTSD, right? Like mm -hmm. Mike Tyson said, everyone had a game plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? Yep. Yep. And, and, and these conversations, like, 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 I think everyone in this business thinks that they're like Tom Brady, they got ice water in the veins, you know, <laughs> you're down 25 points and you can just like, throw these laser, laser strikes, right? And, and people don't talk enough in this business about their emotions, right? People don't talk enough about how you're likely to feel and act when you're down 20, 30, 40%, right? And I'm very cognizant of like how I could potentially feel. And that's what I am trying to hedge against, right? I am trying to hedge um, uh, that uh, what I want, what I'm trying to accomplish is up to a 20% drawdown. I think if you're an equity investor, you just have to take it, right? You just have to take a 20% drawdown as an equity investor. That's, mm -hmm. that's just life, right? Yeah, Above table stakes. The 20, what's that? That's table stakes. To table stakes yeah. uh, I'm not a, a masochist like Munger or, or like, you know, a 70% drawdown. That's like too much for me, right? But I think if the index draws down more than 20%, there's a very, very good chance that something structural fundamentally has changed. Like, like macro is a dirty word for value investors, right? Most people are bottoms up investors. But the reality is that, like, if the index is down 20%, if it's down 30, 40%, there's a very good chance, like, some key input um, in, into, the, into the way the world functions. It could be, you know, there's stress in the banking system. It could be, like, interest rates are significantly higher. Now, how you value a company has, has changed it. There's some sort of unforeseen risk to your portfolio that you, like, that, that, that were unknowns, unknown unknowns that started manifesting, right? And you're right. not going to know that ahead of time. So what I'm trying to do is like, I'm trying to manage my portfolio in such a way that, that I don't know what those unforeseen risks are. I want to be hedge against it. And, and I want to be hedge against the tail risk of it being, uh, you know, of the index, my portfolio drawing down more than 20%, right? So yeah. the strategy that I use is a combination of um, mostly out of the money puts, right? Okay. And it could be a, as simple as I'll just go out, I'll just roll the uh, the Russell 2000 and, and, and the SPY puts that are 15, 20% out of money. And every four to six months, I roll them. And, and you know, philosophically, I'm totally okay with losing one to 2% a year, right? And, yeah, and when I talk to investors, what's up? Yeah. It's like it's, an insurance payment. Totally 
Yeah. It's it's homeowner insurance, right? It's homeowner insurance. And most people that I talk to will say that's that's EV negative, right? In practice, it's been EV positive for me, right? But what's most important is uh, during COVID, uh, as I was reading about uh, you know what was going on, and, and and the news was, sixty million people were locked in their homes in China, right? And I'm like, that was like my holy cow moment. I'm like, if this gets here or this spreads worldwide, like. It's got to be really bad. Like, there's, there's no other way. Like, like, like that's a shit hitting the fan moment, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and um, I went out and I put, I bought a basket of puts, uh, put one half percent of the portfolio into, um, into index puts, specific names. Uh, you know, over the time, over the years, I've, I've learned a way. Like, I developed a, a system where every time I kind of like my friends call it the. The George Soros back pain, right? The Mr. Neutral yeah. Man back pain, backache, yeah. right? I get antsy when certain things like like when the Fed stopped using the word transitory, I started getting antsy and my wife, my wife will tell me that. <laughs> She's like, why are you like agitated, right? Like, why are you antsy? <laughs> <laughs> and, and like it's like a sixth sense, but like risk around the corner, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and like I'll I'll go out, I'll buy. I'll curate my list of, of like indexes, specific company. And sometimes it could just be really simple. It could just be go out and buy puts 20% out of money on your portfolio companies. Like if you own, you know, one of what we bought was like DuPont. We owned DuPont at the time. And I just went 20% out of money and bought puts. And I think that put might've done like, it, it did like more than 10X, right? And, and what it does is, what it does is, what it does for me is, is once we get to the index start drawing down 20%, it I know a lot of these puts start going in the money. And yep. what winds up happening is that uh, um, on the down days, we're capturing about 30% of the drawdown, 20 to 30% drawdown, probably on average, right? Yeah. It, it keeps me extremely emotionally calm, right? Because I know what I know, the way that I'm thinking in a drawdown like that is that as the index draws down, my loan book is getting cheaper. You know, everyone jokes about, oh, Kathy Wood and like the forward return IRs, like the value managers talk about forward returns. I mean, that, that's real, right? Like as your loan book gets cheaper and cheaper, the forward returns, you know, should go higher, right? If you underwrote your investment correctly, right. your forward returns should be higher, right? Yeah. And at the same time, as it draws down, now I got like this, almost this like, you know, miracle source of dry powder that Mm -hmm. that actually gets bigger and bigger, like as Mm -hmm. as the market draws down. And that emotionally, it keeps me like grounded. It allows me to go look at law names. It allows me to focus on what's really important during the drawdown, but like, like we're having right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually went out, you know, I, I hired interns, I hired analysts, I, I've, I'm like, I'm doing, you know, people talk about doing counter cyclical things, right, in this business. The hedging allows me to do that, right? Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm able to like invest in research, I'm able to invest in, in, in taking that potentially, uh, you know, during COVID, during COVID, that one half percent became did 11x right and then it's like it's like think about like index grew down 35 we we're probably down 20 at the low 
Uh, and then, uh, um, and so like there was like a fifteen percent, you know, like um, uh, delta, right? But at the same time, that one and a half percent became like it, it, uh, you know, essentially a twenty percent cash position in the fund yeah. that we could like redeploy, right? So, so the ability, like the what it does for me mentally, allowing me to think clearly, right? In addition to uh, the dry powder that provides for me to be able to go out and go hunt for logs. Like, like I'm, I'm like a can in a canning store right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like we're, 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 you know, like the portfolio is down this year, right? But like, I know every drawdown, we're only capping a fraction of it. And if anything, additional drawdown means that we have the, um, you know, the dry powder to go out and, and buy more lawns at cheaper prices. Yeah. You mentioned you'll go, whether it's you know market index puts or names that you already own, basically twenty percent lower by the puts. What 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 type of time duration are you looking at? Like three to six months? Like what's what's the average? You know, call it twenty percent lower in price. Three months out is that kind of a rough direction? What I find is generally four to six months out is um, is generally like the best time for me and 15 to 20 percent out of the money now there's like a little bit of nuance like if i think something is is potentially a zero like i'll go i'll go as far as like 40 50 percent out of money right like like there are names where you're like if this stops working like it's not down 30 percent, it's down 80 right you'll still so, keep that like four to six month time frame basically yeah so i still keep the four to six month time and the reason is that sometimes you know they cannot work right like if you go out and you you pay for longer duration you go out a year year and a half right like tesla is a great example of this right um you know it, it, it could rally uh 50% now you're like really out of the money right you like yep. overpay you, you pay for it you didn't like like what i'm trying to do is like create this cds like dynamic right when it pays out uh like, like a good way to think about it is that the premium that we pay we want to get you know ideally like 60 70 sometimes 100x leverage to the notional okay right so that yeah. so that once it goes into money, like like you, like I could pay fifty basis points, and and it, if it starts going the money, it could be fifty percent like short position in in that sense, right? Yeah, and you basically don't what you're what you're also trying to do in a sense is engineer a way that you don't need the put to ten to twenty x just to make up some ground. You want to basically have that full net exposure that way. When it you know if it does five to ten x then those are basically just pure incremental gains not making up for you know getting to break even if that makes sense yeah i mean there, there's there's certainly a power law dynamic right is, yeah. that, is, is how i would describe it like you could have a bunch of these expire and not work uh, you know like this year we, we we've had the summer rally meant that i've had uh i've had um you know and, and, and i don't want people to think like 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 I, I hit them like every, like, like, let's keep my, I lose money on this strategy most years. Right. And even this year, uh, we were probably up three, four X, uh, on some of these strategies. And then, and then the summer rally, right. The summer rally, summer fat pivot meant that some, like a, a good amount of them actually expire worthless. Uh, and that was very, very frustrating, right? Like this is not an easy thing to execute, right? <laughs>
<laughs> this is like yeah. not an easy thing to execute, but uh, you know, I, I keep at it. But there's a power law dynamic, right? You you can lose, you can lose, you can lose, and then when it really does pay out, the inverse timing of when it pays out is very very powerful. And and there's a power law dynamic because when it does pay out, there's a good chance that it pays out three, five, ten x of what you pay for. Yeah. Well, the other important thing too that you brought up is not only does it give you actual you know physical capital to go reinvest but you save so much mental capital drawdown where now you have the mental capacity to actually buy you know in the hole or buy when you're down buy when everything's bombed out because i think that's most important it's not necessarily having the dry powder like you can have the dry powder at the bottom but if you have the powder after being basically you know beaten senseless by the market you're probably not going to be quite as quick on the trigger finger and you may pass up some things where if you had more mental capital or if you weren't totally and emotionally drained you would have just said okay like yeah like this setup works like i've seen this you know this is cheap enough and like let's go in and buy it and so having just that mental capital bank high enough to make good decisions in high stress situations to me is more important than having the actual physical capital yeah, I mean, well, it's it's both, right? It's it's, yeah. and, and I think you're exactly right, right? There are things that I do to physically, and Dan McMurtry talk about this a lot, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he talks about lifting heavy weights. Um, he talks about like processes, um, and and you know, I live by the beach. I take walks on the beach. I um, you know, I work out of beach house here in New York City, and. Um, I've started squatting this year, right? Like, like nice again, like for you. people. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, you know, there's nothing that clears your mind like having very heavy weights on your back, and and you can't think of anything else but just like, hey, get up and put this on the rack, right? <laughs> yeah. Everything, everything else fades into the background. Uh, yeah. So there's there's a there's a that mental capability to to as you know everything's kind of falling apart around you to be able to say oh my god like like here's a new name that could be a five to ten bagger right like that's that's what we're built for and and you know again it goes into like like the the worst thing to happen to investment strategy is to the equivalent of like getting injured getting taken out of the game right yeah. and i love this game way too much right the hedging what it does is it, it it prevents me from be, being taken out of the game, right? Because mm -hmm. if I stay in the game, just like the the okay, the count maybe the rate of return isn't as high as some superstar. But if you take the time and and everyone who's who does this understands this, right? Like if you if you compound low teams, right? If you compound low teams for for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, the reason the end results are just phenomenal, right? So so it's 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 like hedging, buying insurance against you being knocked out of the game. And and there's a tremendous amount of value in that. Yeah. And and also like emotionally being able to buy when it, it, like there's a saying that like the time to buy is probably when you want to puke. Right? Like and, and this is something that I spent a lot of time like over the years. I have learned that if I look at the portfolio and I, I, I feel disgusted or I feel like I feel like selling, I, I like teach myself 
to like do the opposite. I force myself to do the opposite. You know, I look at signals like the VIX, right? If the VIX is at, you know, above 50, that's a very target rich environment, right? Like we're not yeah. quite there yet th this year. So there's all these signals, like how I feel when I look at the portfolio, how, you know, what the VIX is, like how, what what is the sentiment on, on Twitter, right? <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. if people calling a bunch of value investors not going to make it, <laughs> like, like I know what kind of environment I'm in. So, so. I mean, the hedging has been, 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 uh, you know, it's been an incredible value add uh, for me. And, you know, lastly, like I manage, uh, you know, outside capital, the conversation that I have with my, you know, investors right now are, hey, you know, we're good. You know, as the market continues to draw down, like we we're only capturing 20, 30% of it, right? There's a tremendous amount of value when the investors know I'm worrying about the risk. I'm worrying about the the drawdown. I have systems and processes in place to like manage that, and they don't need to think. They don't need to think about. It. They don't need to worry about. It. Yes, you know the mark to market is is negative for the year, right? But like yeah. they know, they know that I have a system in place to 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 like you know mitigate the drawdown and also to go on the offensive when I think when I think the time is right. Yeah. Well, and going back to you know, kind of getting into squatting and putting putting heavyweight on your back. I think over the last 10 to 15 years in investing uh, and trading, you've had a lot of people not get punched in the face or not really know what it's like to, to you know, have an account blow up or, or mm -hmm. have that big year. And I'm a big fan of David Goggins and he's extreme in a lot of ways. But one of the things that he preaches is just doing one thing that sucks every day. Uh, and <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a great philosophy and I'm being into, you know, trying to find new ways to, you know, punish my body at the gym or outside running around doing things. So one exercise that I would encourage anyone to do just from like a mental standpoint, you know, just to kind of get into that zone of like, this sucks is just to go on a rower with no music and just <laughs> row for an hour. Like that's it. Like, just like, just row for an hour with no music. You can't, you can't get up. You can't take breaks. Um, it's, I mean, it sucks, but like doing, doing something like that. And then you come back to the markets and especially if, you know, if you've got these hedges in place, you, you feel not reactionary, you feel proactive, you, you basically going from reactive to proactive, um, because you're like, look, yeah, this sucks. Like I've been through things that suck. Like let, this is just kind of another one of those things. And if you've got systems in place, then you can still kind of get after it. <laughs> I mean, like. You know, kudos to you for being able to get like stay on the rower for an hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's 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 awful though. But like, I'll sit like the 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 next one I want to do is the uh, stairmaster for an hour with no music. <laughs> like that's gonna be that's gonna be way worse. Um, <laughs> also, on the squatting, uh, yeah, I have this theory that um, what I try to tailor my workout to you is and and not enough people in the investment business talk about this so like with maybe the exception of like mcmurtry right yeah is that um your your willingness to take risk is is very largely a function of your testosterone level right hmm. and one reason that i strategically started squatting this year is i want to be as the market sells off as we go off in the risk off environment as we go into a very target rich environment, 
I want to have a higher testosterone level, right? And the best way to spike your testosterone level uh, and it is by doing very heavy squats because you're working the largest muscle group in your body, right? It, it's been proven that when you do very heavy lifts, it increases testosterone level. So, so I have this theory that in the, you know, as markets reach new highs, you should be doing a lot of cardio, right? You should just do a lot of these, you know, like light, uh, light but long duration cardio because you don't want to spike your testosterone. But as the market sells off, you know, I, I'm, I'm just doing a ton of heavy squats because when the time comes, uh, I, you know, I want to, you know, I want to up my risk appetite, right? It, you know, yeah. the index is down 40%. I want to be like very risk seeking because that's, that's when you're, you, you could potentially, uh, you know, Howard Marks talks about this, you know, you go out on the risk spectrum when, uh, you know, when there's a ton of fear uh, and, and, you know, Buffett, they all talk about this, right? I'm just trying to put in controls and, and processes in place that will maximize my ability to, you know, to take on risk in, you know, when there's a ton of fear in the market. Yeah. I can't imagine the amount of growth funds searching five, three, one squat programs after, after <laughs> get a bunch of yoked growth managers coming out of this recession. <laughs> Good for them though. I mean, Hey, you win some, you lose some, you get, you get jacked in the process, but you lose half your fund and three quarters of your LPs. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I could, I could talk about fitness and punishing the body for for hours but we do have to wrap up at some point and you know sure. this i mean shoot we're getting close to two hour mark but um so yeah i mean i think i think that hedging discussion was awesome i think because that's that's kind of one of the things that i wanted to learn is like okay like you know how far out and then how far down and and i and i think i think we answered that um you know well and so if we can then yes i'll say this and, and i'll yeah. make it really quick it's hedging is an art it's like riding a bike right Mm -hmm. you should do it because um what i've noticed is that when i when i like like i, I have a lot of friends in this business where i i told them this past year i'm like hey buy some of these put buy this name buy, buy this put right just like uh, it, it a lot of them don't pull the trigger they can't execute right and it's because like 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 when i feel a sense of uh, like some sort of risk creeping uh in my portfolio in the market I could I could turn on a dime like I could I could put thirty basis point to work right away and which actually probably gives me you know enough protection on for thirty you know potentially like 20, 30 percent of my portfolio like I could do that I could do that on a dime right yeah. there's like muscle memory involved in this so like if you're really if you're really serious like you should do it in small size right uh, you know now the 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 implied balls are high but like like there's it, 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 you don't just turn this on there's 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 practice i've been doing this for 10 years right yeah um so if, if you really want to learn and people want to learn like they they should start out small and and um and, and you know do it in small sizes and and get reps get practice um you know you know this this isn't like like you know the stuff i've been doing been, do, been doing it for 10 years over 10 years at this point mm-hmm yeah. yeah. No, I think I think that's great. Like, you know, any any anytime you're going to try to try some new strategy, just take whatever you think you should trade and just cut it 
in half or cut it by a quarter, you know, by three quarters and then just start trading that size. So instead of mm -hmm. risking 50 bips, try 10 to 20 and just mm -hmm. see how that goes. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, as you get more comfortable, the position sizing is really the lever that you should gear um, to, to, to then kind of reflect the increased confidence. But no, I think, I think that's, I think that's a great idea. Um, what is one thing that you believe that nobody else around you believes this could be investing or not investing. Um, so I think uh, I think that inflation is going to be a little bit more persistent than people think. I, th I think there's there's a thread on Value Investor Club where I think at this point there's like 500 posts, right? And people are going back and forth, and people are citing data on, on the. Um, on the goods like you know it seems like a lot of supply chain issues are being solved right and then mm -hmm. if you look at what the fed's doing they, they continue to to push forward with rate increase right and you're like why i, I think there's two potential uh reasons for that one is that the um um i think the inflation expectation is a real thing and if you if you like read and study and 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 you know see what charlie munger has said about inflation and if you talk to people in the 70s, and, and it, 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 I think that once we start thinking that inflation uh, is, you know, naturally going to be five to 10% a year, it's very hard to get someone, an employee to say, hey, we're, we're increasing your pay by 3% next year. And just trust us, inflation has got to come down, you got to be fine. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> The employee's gonna be like, no, I'm gonna get a different job, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're in the middle of a really bad recession and there's a ton of layoffs, right? Which like the Fed is trying to do. That's what they're trying to engineer, right? So, so mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people focus on on the on the uh, the good side, but they don't focus on the inflation expectation. And I think that if you look at why they're so adamant and they're so committed to this, I think I think that's what I'm. Another reason is is I, I think we'll. we'll people be like i talked to a lot of people a lot of other managers they're like well you know once china comes online like a lot of this inflation will go away and if i mm -hmm. have to bet i think that that if you look at population growth and demographics and and you know like if you look at japan what happened there if you look at korea what happened there a lot of these you know the the, the three east asian countries um you know, uh, started by producing very cheap goods. Um, there was a time where made in Japan meant it was, it was really cheap, right? Um, yeah. You, you can't imagine that today. So as they get wealthier, the fertility rates tend to fall, right? So China has been the factory of the world for the past, you know, three, four decades. I think we're getting, like, if, if you just look at the demographic, um, um, the demographics of China, you know, the one-child policy and all these dynamics, uh, I don't think most U.S. managers, most European managers, like, understand the fact that they're not making a lot of babies in China, right? This, like, yeah. this, like, endless pool of really cheap labor who's willing to assemble iPhones in a factory or, or churn out, like, cheap toys, toys, right, for the Western world. I think a lot of that is coming to an end, right? And then, like, there's, there's the potential regionalization where they have to move the supply chain to South, you know, to, to the Americas, right? And that yeah. inherently got to be more expensive. I think people are underestimating that inflation could be more persistent. And, and, um, and, and, you know, so uh, I don't, I wouldn't say that 
I'm the only one to have that opinion, but I think that a lot of people are underestimating the the inflation expectation, the the role of China's demographic, and the need for regionalization. Well, I think a lot of that too. Maybe it's not necessarily that they don't agree with you. I don't think they want to agree because then it would completely upend and change basically everything about how they, you know, invest. Right. So mm -hmm. the companies, so the companies that worked pre this high inflation environment, like those aren't the businesses you're going to want to own, right? You're going to want to mm -hmm. own the real assets, the hard assets, maybe the commodities, like dare I say, oil and gas. Like you might want to own some of these things that you just don't either like to own or you don't want to own, or even I mean, we can throw in ESG here. Like maybe you've got some ESG mandate and you're like, oh, like shit, I can't buy oil and gas stocks. Um, and then you're kind of SOL. And so mm -hmm. there's almost this just this like denial um, because you don't want that reality to exist, right? And I'm and I'm kind of the first to admit this. Like I love studying earlier stage, higher growth consumer businesses or you know software type businesses, um, and I might have to face the reality that like maybe for the next five to ten years, the best ideas are going to be in the oil and gas and hard asset space, like. And and that's the reality that I have to internalize and then adjust and actually equip myself with the right tools to value those types of businesses and to own those types of businesses, which again, like that's not fun. Like I would much rather study this like awesome, fast growing, founder led, consumer based, you know, D2C business that's growing. It's got awesome unit economics. But no, like maybe I just have to study this oil and gas natural, you know, natural gas pipeline LP. And that's the best mm -hmm. return going forward. Yeah. And then the um uh, you know, I, I have some thoughts on there. I think, I think buying some schmuck insurance in that area is not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, it goes back to, um, I think you know, valuation matters. I think the, um, um, I think valuation matters. I think, I think the problem with, with like buying the better companies that's got all the, you know, um, what worked in the past uh, is that, you know, <laughs> they were just so expensive, right? And um, right. and then like on the hard asset side, I mean, you're talking to someone who literally owns a chemical distribution company, right? We own specialty chemicals, and and yeah. I think I'm even some of the wire here, <laughs> yeah, like, like like rock quarries. Right? <laughs> 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 I, I don't really own the ton of oil and gas, uh, but you know, I'm I'm kind of like warming up to it because the the. You know, NIMBY, ESG to kind of natural resources and commodities is what NIMBY is to housing, right? It, it's like the same analogy. You, like, yeah. when, hey, we're not going to build, you know, we're not going to invest in the oil and gas. We're not going to invest in this, um, you know, in, in this chemical power plant, you know, ch chemical plant that's that's going to look ugly and be potentially be uh, polluted. And, and, you know, like, like we're not going to build more steel capacity, right? So you could potentially have a world where some of these these traditionally bad return on asset industries actually become decent ones because uh, but like the, the supply like like the world just won't build new supply mm -hmm. and that's all you need to generate super returns too is if you have businesses that everyone thinks are really shitty go from really shitty to not so bad like mm -hmm. there's your like 25 to 40 percent irr honestly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, sometimes you find that because 
because of industry consolidation. And this, this is a theme that like yeah. I spend a lot of time on where, it, you know, if you look at some of the, um, uh, you know, the, the aluminum can packaging business, right? There used to be a lot more players that gets consolidated. Um, you, you know, there's, there's um, you know, Buffett bought the additive business. Like, why did that happen? It, uh, you know, essentially got consolidated down to, I believe, four players, right? And, and there's a lot of these, you know, I, I talked to a lot of pe uh, people, uh, a lot of management teams in the especially chemical business, like there's, there, there are, there are especially, there are chemicals that are, you would describe them as commodity, but mm -hmm. because the suppliers have left the industry, now there's really only two players who manufacture it and, and no one's going to build any new ones. Like it actually becomes like, like a, like 25, 30% return on, you know, equity type of investments with like yeah. no threat of new uh you know new competitors so uh you know it, it's um you know capital cycle theory is a real thing yeah it's um it'll be it'll be wild to see how kind of this all shakes out but you know like i said if you can properly head yourself then you might be fine um mm -hmm. so mr neutral where can people go to find out more about you i know you're on twitter um and you know i think your dms are open as well so if they want to reach out to you that's probably the best place to do it yes um that's you know dms are open um physically in the rockaway beach area in new york city which like those who don't know you can you can get out here via the ferry you can get out here via the a train through the new york city uh subway system and if you're international and you're flying in to um uh you know into jfk airport i'm about a 20 minute uh you know uber ride from jfk airport so uh that was by design, I you know I bought a beach house to use it as my um, as my office, and uh, it's great to be out here. <laughs> it's 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 easy to uh, to access, and uh, I'm open to uh, taking walks on the beach. Awesome, yeah, sounds sounds fun. I love I love the beach. Um, and then last last question for you, Mister Neutral: If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? So I would say, I thought about this, and I would say probably uh, Kale Sanderson. So um, do, do you know who he is? No, I don't. Okay. So he's a head wrestling coach at Penn State right now. And a uh, extraordinary athlete. He was undefeated in college wrestling, full-time NCAA wrestler. He's the only college wrestler to go undefeated uh, in, in, in history, right? Wow. And I... Um, he, he's an Olympic gold medalist, uh, so he won an Olympic gold medalist, uh, gold medal. Uh, he, he beat Yo Romero, right, uh, <laughs> in the past. So, but uh, what fascinates me about Kale Sanderson is that um, since he taken over at Penn State, Penn State has became a powerhouse for wrestling. And mm. you, uh, if you look at, uh, like, last year, I believe there were um, the 10 weight classes in college wrestling. Um, Penn State wrestlers were, uh, you know, th there's five NCAA champ from Penn State last year. And it's like, it's incredible because the one that he's had, he had a decade of dominance. Yep. He somehow get, you know, he recruits well, but then there's, there's like, if a Penn State wrestler was in the finals, which is, if you think about, it, it's a very high pressure environment. You're, you're, you're like wrestling in front of, uh, you know, thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people in a stadium. You're televised on ESPN. Like 
people could very easily choke in an environment like that, right? Yeah. Somehow his wrestlers rise up to the occasion. And if you if you find a Penn State wrestler in the finals, there's a good chance he's gonna win, right? Mm-hmm. And I would love to talk to Kale Sanderson. I would love to like pick his brain. Uh, if you think about like like you know, we were talking earlier about suffering, right? Mental suffering, David Goff. Yeah. Like if you look yeah. at the sport of wrestling and you're competing college level, you're working out hours of the day, but uh, you know, hours of the day, and you're like starving yourself, right? Like yeah. you're not eating. I, I can assure you, during competition, right? You're not eating, right? No, so you're wearing you... trash bags to lose weight. <laughs> yes, which I've done, right? Like <laughs> I've gone through process in high school wrestling where I would go, I would go, and my dinner was literally like four ice cubes and a shot of apple juice, right? Like I've done wow. that in high school, uh, um, you know. And and it's like, how do you motivate people to compete at that high level hmm. while not eating with no prospect of like turning pro and making a living? Right. Right. It, it That's is a like big the, thing. It is like the ultimate like passion. If you think about what we do, I think I think the people in 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 what you know in the investment world, like the ones that are really successful, I think. Like, like passion is table stakes, right? Like, like if you're not passionate about this business, like go, go do something else, right? Especially if you want to manage outside capital. Uh, and I, I think Kale, like somehow he found a way to recruit the right talent. Somehow he found a way to get people to rise up to to the occasion in the biggest stage when the moment, you know, when there's most at stake. You know, the people, uh, the wrestlers who are doing it uh, are are training hard, not eating. Like, like you got to get people to buy into it. And there's a lot more to this, right? Like, if you talk to, like, if, if you listen to a lot of these interviews, there is a CEO dynamic to all this, where you got to, like, you know, get the right donors, get the right backers, get you know, get the financial resources to back the uh, the program, right? Yeah. There's a lot more than just like, hey, teaching the kids you know, the right techniques, right? That's really, really important, right? How do you drive a culture, right? How do you drive the culture? How do you self-select, uh, you know, the top wrestlers to want to go in, uh, you know, to go to Penn State, right? Yeah. And and I, I would just be fascinated by, well, one, like, how did he do it himself? I'm sure, like, like you don't, you don't go 159 and 0, I believe, right? You don't go 159 and 0 in college for four years without having a tremendous amount of self-motivation and discipline, right? Yeah. And then like to to kind of go from a player to a coach and have that kind of success. Um, you know, I recently ran a very successful Twitter campaign, recruiting campaign that went viral, right? And yep. I have two in-person interns here and I have, you know, two analysts in South America. And it's been it's been the most unusual, surprising like, you know, success that I've had. And I would love, like, you know, from a timely perspective, it, it's timeless, right? It's it's timeless. I would want to talk to Kale because it's timeless. Like, like, like this is a topic that that deeply interests me. But at the same time, it's also timely because I am, I am, you know, I'm quickly finding out that like I really enjoy the coaching and mentoring aspect of working with interns and animals. Yeah. And and I would love to learn from him. So yeah. Uh, you know, he, he would be he would be my my you know top choice right now. I think what you need to do is get your interns on a rower for an hour with no music to see who they really are, and then have them model <laughs> companies after that. 
<laughs> I don't think everybody needs to go through what like 4:30 <laughs> a.m. hour no music and then go straight into studying and company for an entire day. Well, we out. were we were supposed to take surfing lessons yesterday, so the water started to get a little colder right now. Yeah, and yeah. Like winter surfing is a thing around here, right? So like like when it snows in January and you get a swell, like there are people out on the beach surfing, like mm -hmm. uh, you know these waves. So you know, I, I think we'll just opt for that. I think, I think, I think, I think we we, we were supposed to do uh, we were supposed to uh, take take our first surfing lesson yesterday, but the waves were a little bigger. But we'll we'll get on it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll take up winter surfing here. Yeah, that'd be fun. Well, <laughs> yeah, Mister Neutral, this has been an awesome conversation. I I can't wait to release it, and I know I know others are really going to get a lot of info out of it because I I mean. I learned so much just from our two hour conversation. So thank you so much. And, um, you know, best of luck for you uh, with the rest of the year and uh, just, you know, hope you keep killing it. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And it's, it's been, I mean, I can't believe two hours went, went by. This, this is, this has been awesome. This episode is brought to you by ticker ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.